0: You're listening to a podcast in New Covenant Church. Join us Sundays at ten thirty a.m. in Pompano. Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to be here with you. Like. Pat said, this is Rebecca, she is one of our seniors in our youth group, and she did such a great job. As soon as I asked her if she would be willing to come up and read for me, she did not bat an eye. She was willing to do it. And as I'm even getting up here and feeling nervous and my palms are getting sweaty because I'm getting up in front of a group of people, she was more than ready to come up and do that. So Rebecca, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. So, we are going to dig into the book of Esther today, and if you were really excited to come and hear Adam speak this morning, I have tricked you, and now you get to listen to me, but it is absolutely my privilege to be able to be here and speak with you guys this morning. So, my goal always, whenever I have the the time to preach and the opportunity to teach, is to share with you something that has made me love God more in the hopes that it will have that same effect on you, that it will reveal something to you about him, and that it will make you love him more. So before we begin, I'm just going to take a second, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive right in. So bow your heads with me. Holy Father, I love you. I thank you for our church. I thank you for its people. I thank you for its staff, God. We are dependent on you. We are imperfect, and you are perfect. I am imperfect, and you are perfect. And I pray that this morning... You would open my mind, you would open my heart, and your Holy Spirit would fill me up that every word I have to say would come from you. We love you, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Alright, so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do a sprint through the book of Esther. There's going to be six portions of scripture that I'm going to throw up on the screen for you guys, and I'm going to read. I'm going to try to add a little bit of context and understanding to the book to add a little bit more um, to it as we go, and then afterwards we're going to identify what is God teaching us through this text about himself, but also his relationship with humanity. Now, I love this book. If I had to pick one book of the Bible that say this is my favorite, I think it would be Esther. I love this story of a woman who has made plenty of mistakes and is in a tough spot, is an agent of social justice in a male-dominated world. It is amazing, and I love the story. I love the characters. I love the plot. I love their interactions with each other. Um, it's, it's my absolute favorite. So I'm going to throw a map up here on the screen for you guys just to add a little bit of context. So all this whole story is taking place within the Persian Empire, okay? So in 539 B.C., the Persian Empire went and conquered this other empire called the Babylonian Empire. Before, or before that, the Babylonian Empire went and captured all of Israel and conquered that. And they took all the population of Israel, they took them out, and they dispersed them all through their empire. So we can see circled here, I have Jerusalem circled. Um, And that would would have been the capital city of Israel where a majority of the people of Israel, the Jews, would have been. And then I have Susa circled here, which is the capital of the Persian Empire and where our story this morning is taking place. So you can see this huge distance that they have been taken from their place. And this is at the peak of Persian power. Now, these Jews who were dispersed all throughout the empire had a bit of a tough spot for them. Because they believed in one God, honored one God, served one God, while these Persian people, regardless of where they lived, and pretty much everybody else in the world at this time, had multiple gods. And they had a vast difference in their moral and religious beliefs. And this caused a lot of friction and tension between the Jews, the people of God, and the people that they lived amongst. And we're going to see that play out in this story. So we're going to dive right back in and, and pick up right where Rebecca left off for us. Um, and I'm going to start adding a little bit of context to this story of Esther. So like, we, like she read this King Ahasuerus, he has been having a feast for 180 days. And the goal of this feast is nothing more than to serve his own pride and his own arrogance. He is inviting everybody out that he has ever met, rich, poor, anybody who can get there, just to parade his wealth, his power, and his magnificence before them for 180 days. It is insane. Okay? And this is what we see in the next verse where Rebecca left off for us. It says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman." Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ashuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So this, this character, Vashti, the queen of Persia, is an absolute hero. We look at her and we're like, yeah, she made the right decision. She said no. She had this incredible courage, this incredible bravery to say no to a king in a male-dominated world. And what this meant when she was protecting his, her honor, her virtue, by not going and dancing in front of a thousand drunk men, that we praise, we love that idea, she lost her queenship. She was kicked out, exiled. Everything she had was taken away from her because she chose to do the right thing. And we love Vashti. I, she is a hero. But she loses her queenship. And now the Persian Empire is in need of a new queen. And they have the means to figure one out and acquire another one. Let's look at the next section. This is in chapter 2. It says. After these things, when the anger of the king Ashuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let cosmetics be given to them, and let, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So let me paint the reality of Esther's situation here. First of all, there were probably about 1,000 young women between the ages of 15 and 19 brought in from around the empire to try to fill this role of the new, of the new queen. They would arrive there, they would be beautified, they were put on special food, um, they had special rules they had to live by, and they were trained to have this one night with the king, and then after, he would make a decision about them. And every single one of these women is doomed to one of four fates. First thing that could happen to them is they could come in, and they could he could not be pleased with them, and they would become a concubine of his that he never calls on. And they would live a very miserable, sad, boring, dreary life. They were never allowed to marry again. They were barely allowed to ever leave the palace. They were essentially just sitting off to the side for the rest of their life until they grew old. The second thing that could have happened to these women is that they could be a concubine that he does like. It's a very similar situation, but from time to time he would call them and they would come visit him and stay with him. The third thing that could have happened to these women is that he could have chosen to marry them. And this might have happened to three or four different women that he could marry them, and this would mean that they would have a very comfortable, fruitful life. They would be taken care of. All of their children would be taken care of. But the fourth thing, and this is what happens to Esther, he marries her, and she becomes the queen of Persia. So, Esther's beauty earns her the queenship. But where we saw Vashti as a hero, where we saw this hero, this woman who, who stood up against this request, essentially stuck it to the man who, who had a voice, stood up and said no, and had this immense courage and bravery, we see Esther do the opposite. Esther does not stand up and use her voice. She does not say no. She does not stand up. She sells out to the culture around her. And at the same time, she would have been expected and required to take up worship of all the gods that the Persians had, which were many. So she essentially had to abandon her people and her devotion to her people. And at the same time, she abandoned her devotion to God and took up these other gods. So where Vashti is a hero, Esther at this point is not at all. And anyone who reads this, regardless of really what background you have, whether you're a Christian or non Christian, religious, irreligious, we can look at this text and be like, yeah, Esther blew it. She completely messed up. That is, the, that is what we take away from this right here. But Esther has a cousin named Mordecai, and he helped raise her, and he happens to be living in the same city, the same town, be around her. she He's helping her out with anything she needs. When one day, well, when Mordecai is introduced, something very important happens to him, and I'm going to pull up this next text from the end of chapter two. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold of Ashwarius, and this came, and this came, oh, who guarded the threshold became angry and started to lay hands on King Ashwarius. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the books of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai catches this plot and saves the king's life. He hears about it. He's excited. He gives Mordecai a little promotion, pretty much. He gives him like a small job where he's now working and serving in the palace, in the court, but not much. But during this time, Mordecai makes a political rival that really drives this story forward. A guy named Haman is also high up in the king's court. And every time Haman comes into a room, he expects everybody who is of less position and less status than than him to kneel and bow before him. Now, Mordecai is a devout servant of God. So anytime Haman comes in, he refuses to bow down. To him. He refuses to bow down to anybody before God, and this infuriates Haman. So he makes the decision that he wants to get rid of Mordecai, but not only get rid of Mordecai, he wants to annihilate the entire Jewish population in all of Persia. So he makes this plan to do this. He tells the king that they're a threat and they need to be dealt with, and the king approves the plan. And this whole time, the king has absolutely no idea that Esther is a Jew. When, Esther hear, or when Mordecai hears of this plan for his people to be eradicated and himself to be killed, he panics and he finds Esther and he pleads with her to go before the king and ask for help. But she doesn't want to help. She doesn't want to go outside her comfort zone. She doesn't want to serve her God and her people. She wants to stay where she is and be safe and comfortable. And this is what she says to him in chapter 4. It says, Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man goes before the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these last 30 days. She's scared. Her life is on the line, and she doesn't want to risk that. But Mordecai says something really beautiful to her. He essentially says, Esther, if you don't want to help, help from the Jews will come from somewhere else. But you may be in your position for just this very reason. So after that, she agrees to help. She'll go to the king. She builds this plan, and she goes into the king and meets with him, and he holds out his golden scepter, and she plans a feast for herself, the king, and Haman. And for the first time, we see Esther step up, ready to do her duty, ready to serve God, ready to serve her people, exactly what we would expect from her to do where she didn't do what we expected before. And the king hears her, accepts her, and sets this feast on the calendar, essentially. So, in between her time going to visit the king, and the actual feast, something else very important happens. And this happens in chapter 6. I'll throw it up on the screen and I'll read it here. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles that were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on the king. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. The king all of a sudden has this newfound love for Mordecai as he remembers that he has been saved by him, essentially. His life has been guarded. And then the culmination of this story comes together at this feast that Esther has prepared for her, Haman, and the king. And this is in chapter 7. It starts out with the king saying, All right, we're here. What can I give you? What is your request? Anything you could ask of me, up to half of my kingdom, it's yours. I'm happily giving it to you. And she says this. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, Let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would not have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Asherah said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And then Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king. And this ends, this section here ends by Haman being hanged and executed and the people of God being saved because of the king's love for Esther and his newfound love for Mordecai. Guys, this is one of my absolute favorite stories because like I said, I love the characters, I love the people, I love the plot in it. But it's amazing to me because in scripture, we're constantly seeing God work in in the extraordinary. We see God lead his people out of Egypt with 10 plagues. We see the walls of Jericho tumble down before the people of Israel. When Christ is walking the earth, we see him healing people restoring sight to the blind, the hearing to the deaf, raising people from the dead, and even himself being resurrected. We always see God working in the extraordinary to save his people. But not in this story. This story is completely ordinary, and I don't know if you noticed it, but everything I read to you, God was not mentioned once. Nothing about God was not mentioned at all. And you might think, oh, no, it's just somewhere else in the book. Actually, it's not. The book of Esther is the only book of the Bible that not only doesn't mention God, but doesn't say anything about God or anything spiritual at all. It's unbelievable. And you think, oh, man, they must have just forgot to put it in. No, 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 that's not the case. The author did this deliberately. We can actually see parts in this text where, where the author writes around God. There's a time where they're fasting, where they don't eat and don't drink for three days, and everywhere else in Scripture we see they fasted, they didn't eat or drink, and they prayed to God. In this one it says, they fasted and they didn't drink. Moving on. No mention of God. And it is amazing because we see the quiet movements of God in ordinary life in this text. We see the quiet movements of God saving his people. Because what God does in the extraordinary, we always know. What God does in the extraordinary, we always know. But it is very easy for us to think when he's working in the ordinary, that he's actually not. That he's just being silent. But let's look at this. Let's look at what happened in this story. The king got drunk. So we had Vashti come and dance. Vashti said no, she got expelled from the queenship. They needed to find a new queen. Esther was beautiful. Esther is made queen. Mordecai happened to hear about the plot of the two guys ready to kill the king and it was recorded in that chronicle and the king happened to not be able to sleep and have that one text brought and read to him. And because of all this, the Jews are saved. Somebody who doesn't believe in God or isn't a Christian or is irreligious might, not, might look at this and say, that's not God, it's just a series of coincidences. But whether God is mentioned in this book or not, we can clearly see him moving and serving and saving his people. It's amazing. It is not a coincidence at all. And it begs this question, are you living a life as a result of just things happening? Are you living a life as a result of just things happening around you, just a string of coincidences? I just happened to have the job that I have. Just by chance I bumped into the person that I've married and started a family with. It's just by coincidence that I live where I live? Is this how you're viewing your life, as just a series of coincidences that you're involved in? Or are you living life in a way that reflects that there is a God actively moving and working in the ordinaries of your life as well as the extraordinary? Because God is moving, my friends, God is moving even when we cannot see it. Even when you cannot see it. And this text should reveal the ordinary movements of God in your life. When I was first putting this together and I first read this text and started thinking about it in this light, I had to sit back and think, I was like, man, look how God has brought me to where I am that I could have just looked at and said, ah, it's just by chance but look how God has sown this whole path and this whole life together to bring me where I am. It is easy to look and say, it's just coincidence, but it's not. It is God moving in the ordinary because God is working out your salvation constantly whether you see it or not. God is working out your salvation constantly whether you see it or not. But here's the thing. We don't get to see the whole picture of God's plan for us. We don't get to see the whole picture of God's plan for us. And that can be difficult. I imagine that it was really difficult for Esther. She couldn't see the whole plan for her life as she was ripped from her family to go and be a wife to some stranger, to some man she had never met at a very young age. I can imagine that Esther is not very pleased with the way her life was playing out around her. But in the end, it made sense. But during it, she may have felt lonely, she may have felt isolated, she may have felt vulnerable, and the silence that she might have heard from God may have made her feel abandoned. Because when we can't see the whole picture, and when we're in a similar situation to Esther, when the world around us is not playing out in a way that pleases us, that we like, that we hope for, that we want, it's very easy for us to say, I feel abandoned. And I know this because I felt that way. And there was a point in life where I said, God, I feel abandoned. See, a couple years ago when I first got here, I went through a season where I was ridden with anxiety. I was struggling to feel direction in life. I didn't feel any guidance. I felt stuck and stagnant. I didn't know where I was going or what was happening. And this whole time I was praying through it, asking God for guidance, asking God for help, Whatever he would offer, I would take because I was so uncertain and I needed his help. But this whole time I was praying, I felt like I wasn't receiving any of that from God. I felt silence. So I continued to pray. I continued to trust. And this whole thing came to a culmination. This season of anxiety, this season of stress, this season of unknowing came to a peak when I was on a trip to Thailand for work. And one night, we were having a worship service, and we were all um, singing and worshiping, and I was sitting there, and I was praying for God's guidance in my anxiety and my stress and my lack of direction when I felt a hand on my shoulder, and I looked up, and there was a guy that I worked with named Garam from Georgia, and not the state of Georgia. We're talking like the country of Georgia, way over there. this guy is huge, this gentle giant. I turn around and I see him there. He both looks and sounds like Gru from Despicable Me, if you've ever seen that movie. Like, spitting image. It's insane. So, this guy has his hand on my shoulder and he asks if he can pray for me. And of course I say yes, I needed it. And as he starts praying, he is reading my mail. I don't know if you've had a situation like that, but everything he was saying was where I was in my life, was in the season I was in, had to do with the anxiety I was suffering, had to do with the lack of direction I was wrestling with. And he finished praying, and he looked at me, and I looked up at him with tears in my eyes because he had just wrecked me, and he said something that since that day a couple years ago has been so near on my heart and in my mind He looked at me and he said, without me telling him about my situation at all, he was flying blind here, he looked at me and he said, Cody, do not mistake God's silence for God's abandonment. He said, do not mistake God's silence for God's abandonment. Because, listen, God has a masterful and unique purpose for our lives. A masterful and unique purpose purpose for our lives. And the same God who has that purpose and has that plan for us, regardless of silence or whatever is going around in the world behind you, he is not going to abandon us. He sees the whole picture. He saw the whole picture for Esther. He saw saw and sees the whole picture for me. He sees and understands the whole picture for you. And that should bring you tremendous peace. The God who has unique plans and purposes for you will not abandon you. And the beauty of it is we see it in this text right here as he didn't abandon Esther. The most important thing we see in this text is the grace of God shown for his people. And I'm going to ask the worship band to come back up here as as I talk about this part, but The grace of God is seen so clearly in this story. And let me tell you why. God takes, blesses, is patient with, and uses a broken and sinful person to save his people. Remember this comparison I made between Vashti and Esther. Vashti was a hero. She stood up, used her voice, said no, stuck to what she believed, was virtuous, guarded herself, guarded her honor. Esther did not. Esther sold out to the culture. She abandoned her devotion to her people. She abandoned her devotion to her God. She was not there to stand up and use her voice and do what God expected her to do. In this moment, Esther chose to love herself more than she loved God. If you ever came to youth group or our services here on a Friday night, this is how we talk about and describe sin. Sin to us and what we, how we describe it is choosing, an individual choosing to love themselves more than they love God. And this is what Esther chose to do right here. But God did not look at her, wipe his hands, say, You've messed up, I'm out, you're on your own. He looked at her, valued her, he was patient with her, he was graceful to her, he was with her the whole time. And here's the beauty of it. God takes Esther, Esther, and grows her into something great. Because we see a far different Esther from chapter 2 where she sells out to the culture than we see in chapter 6 where she steps up and says, I'm going to do whatever needs to be done at my own risk for the devotion to my God and the devotion to my people. God took her and made her into something great. Look, the point of this text, the point of everything I say, is not for you to be like, wow, we should be more like Esther. I don't want any of us to be more like Esther, and here's why. Because we already are like Esther. We are the broken and sinful and hurting people. We already are the Esthers because we are imperfect and we are in relationship with the perfect. We are imperfect and in relationship with the perfect God. And if this is your first time here, if you're not a Christian, I want to unpack this a little bit for you. Our faith in God, our relationship with God is not a reward system. It is not a, I do good in order to get good from God. God is not looking at us and saying, ah, Cody's done good enough. He he, he does good. I'm able to use him now. That is by no means how this relationship with God works. It is not a reward system because we're imperfect and he is perfect. And here's the thing. He doesn't see our sin when he looks at us. He doesn't see our failures when he looks at us. He sees a pure, justified, grace-covered son or daughter. And that's what this text is telling us. That's what Esther is telling us. The author is telling us he gives grace to people who don't deserve it. And frankly, he gives grace to people who don't fully appreciate it after they've received it. And that's me. I am the person who doesn't deserve grace but have received grace, and I am the person who has received grace and doesn't fully appreciate it. And now I'm going to go out on a limb here and say at times at least this is you too, a person who has received who doesn't deserve grace, but will receive it, and a person who has received it and doesn't fully appreciate it. He doesn't love us despite our sin. He loves us so much that he purified us from it, and you might be the one who doesn't deserve it, but will get it. You might be the one who has it and doesn't fully appreciate it, and that doesn't matter because that's me, I've been both. And God is using the ordinary and the extraordinary to work out our salvation and your salvation, whether we see it or not. He sees the big picture, even if you don't. And his silence is not abandonment. And he does not give us grace because we're great, But much like Esther, he takes our brokenness and makes us into something great. Thank you. Let's worship God here.